Well, I definitely had to apologize to Robert um, at halftime of the game last Sunday, which seems like so much further back than just last Sunday. Um, I told him, I'm sorry, son, this is what it's like to be a Vikings fan. Well, that's kind of how Eagles fans feel. And so last week's um, NFC Championship was like, somebody's finally going to be happy, although they may get their dreams crushed in the Super Bowl. Um, But somebody else is going to be like, this is what it always is like. So, uh, yeah, Vikings, Eagles are probably like two of the most successful, least successful franchises, if that makes any sense. Most successful teams never to win a championship. Uh, We certainly have to be very high on that list, each of us. Um, I yeah, don't... and maybe by the time, maybe if someone's a little slow on their downloads, maybe by the time they hear this, that won't be true anymore, but uh, also maybe not. Well, I know I owe you uh, the results of our bet, so am I uh, I'm just going to go ahead and do that? Yeah, now Kate is from Pennsylvania, right? <laughs> That's right, Kate's from the Philadelphia suburbs, my wife, so it's not difficult for me to say nice things about Philadelphia, and I know things about Philadelphia that... Um, come from personal experience, and some of them are indeed positive. So it's not difficult for me to say, hey, um, the the best uh, cheesesteak I've ever had is in South Philly, and it's not at Pat's or Mike's. So if you're going there, you know, those are the touristy trap places. Go find somewhere else to do. Um, you know, Philadelphia has been uh, I, uh, not quite second home to me, third or fourth home somewhere down along the line. I've certainly spent a lot of my time in Philadelphia and maybe almost as much time on I-95 getting back and forth from Philadelphia to D.C. So uh-huh. it's uh, it's not difficult for me to wish them well in uh, the Super Bowl coming up here. Um, I will wait until the end of the uh, podcast to drop my pick because, in all honesty, I haven't decided which set of my friends I want to piss off more. That's uh, Yeah, that's interesting because you do have some, some Patriots fan friends uh, yeah. uh, and Vikings fan Now, Vikings fans who may be ready to let go last week and say, well, I just want to see the NFC win or uh, I just want to see someone different than the Patriots. Right. Um, but also they may, they may just not be over it. I find the parallel between the Patriots and Mount Union, this discussion that we have almost every year in the Stag Bowl, um, very striking. Well, the thing is, it's not a different, it's not a completely different Patriots team that comes to the uh, Super Bowl on a regular basis, right? The the Stag Bowl, it, those players are guaranteed to roll off every four years, but uh, you know, obviously, uh, Tom Brady is not quite in the same kind of situation. Yeah. So what we're saying is like, this is Mount Union if uh, Larry Karras was still the coach and Greg McKaylee or Kevin Burke was still the quarterback, <laughs> like the quarterback never has to graduate. Right. It's true that it is a little different, but I think the sentiment is pretty similar in that there's a, a group of people who say they want to see greatness and they want to see greatness repeated and that greatness raises the bar for everyone else. And then there's also a group of people who are just like, ugh, let's anything different than the same old, same old. Uh, I'm rooting for the underdog. I'm rooting for the other team. Uh, That's who initially, I guess, got on the Whitewater bandwagon. And then Whitewater at one point sort of became the the um, Patriots or the Mountain Union or or whatever. Um, But those are also the people who who don't want Mountain Union to to make it to the Stag Bowl, who um, root for Mary Harden Baylor when they get there. And then there's also a, a sort of subset of people who are just like. I appreciate everything they bring to D3 and it, and it brings the level up. So very similar. I find the complaints, um, especially since we just go through this every December and then it repeats <laughs> in January and early February, I find it to be uh, the, the parallels to be very striking. Football fans, it's now time for the D3football.com Around the Nation podcast. 
Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and you Keith McMillan. You tuned into the Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and more than occasional guests this time of year talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. We're the largest division. We've got some of the smallest schools. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com, and my co-host, Keith McMillan, has been with us since 1999. And here's where Keith shares his bona fides as a Philadelphia Eagles fan in case you needed more proof. All I need to say is I'm still waiting for the Eagles to bring it home for Jerome. That was the the 1991 uh, theme. Jerome Brown was a, a linebacker, defensive lineman who passed away. Um, he had a car accident, and um, I think it actually might have been the 92 team that was sort of rallying together. And then um, Bryce Pop from Green Bay um, hit Randall Cunningham in the knee in week one. Cunningham blows his knee out. The dreams are gone, and the Eagles never win a Super Bowl. But I'm still waiting for them to bring it home for Jerome anytime now, guys. So sure, it's the off season, and we might be talking a little bit about the Super Bowl. This doesn't stop us from doing podcasts about Division Three football. We did 25 of these things in 2017, which is the most we've ever done by a, a pretty good margin. Uh, Keith, frankly, I kind of miss this. Well, to be honest, I have a hard time getting back into the D3 spirit. We sort of um, retire it right around the time of the Stag Bowl. Like we go very hard from August yeah. uh, until December. And the neat thing about D3 is the way it wraps up right before – Christmas or the holidays, whichever holiday you celebrate, and then it's done, it's over with, and then sort of the other college bowls happen into January, but college football is kind of over. And each time I'm like, oh, we have a off-season podcast, and then I listen to the interviews, and they're all super interesting, and I'm like back into it again. So it's interesting that that um, that you really miss it. I think for our listeners, if you've uh, had a little D3 football withdrawal, these interviews, and uh, and Pat and I. Uh, jabbering back and forth, I think will be will be good to get you back into it and just get you thinking about some of the broader topics that we don't get a chance to talk about while we're uh, in season. You know, recruiting, um, the impact of non-conference scheduling comes up. Um, you know, where where a certain player who's all American, what the pro prospects are for that player, uh, those sort of things all pop up in in these three interviews we have lined up for you today, and uh, and it, it does get fascinating i promise you yeah and i did not really um i didn't have the kind of burnout at the end of this season that i've had in a couple of previous seasons so it was not a chore for me to get back into this i really enjoyed talking to our guests and uh, just so you know we'll be talking with uh, patrick mohorsik that's the worcester offensive lineman who was elected captain of the afca good works team uh that's the organization's annual honors for players who do good things in the community he got a trip to Atlanta for the College Football Awards and then to New Orleans for the Sugar Bowl out of that. And then we'll talk to coaches of two of last year's breakout teams, Jason Mangoni of Brockport and Tony Koncheski of Barry. Uh, of course, those are not the uh, only things happening in January and uh, perhaps at the end of December in Division Three. We had a lot of guys playing in All-Star games uh, and there were a lot of players in smaller kind of D3-centric ones, but uh, we'll focus here for a little bit on the guys who played in some of the more elite games, which involve players from across divisions of the NCAA and the NAIA. For example, the uh, NFLPA game, uh, it's the Players Association game, featured uh, Wesley Tackle Matthew Gano, uh, Brandon Shedd, the wide receiver from Hobart, and uh, the long snapper from Mount Union, Andy Riemann. Uh, and then uh, on Saturday, uh, this past Saturday, I, you may not be listening to this in sequential order, but you know, back at the end of January, uh, Dubuque cornerback Michael Joseph 
played in the Senior Bowl. Uh, he played for the North team, which lost 45-16. But thankfully, uh, those of us who, when you follow pro football and you know fringe prospects like a lot of D3 guys are, you know that uh, the practices at these events are where the guys get evaluated more than the actual gameplay itself. Yeah, that's really the theme of the Senior Bowl. In fact, uh, when I was the NFL editor uh, at the Washington Post, what we would send the guy down or two people down uh, from Monday to Wednesday, and the game is Saturday. So everybody wants to go to like the the uh, the real competitive practices. Sometimes they would say until Thursday, but very few people stay to the game. And the, and when they would credential you, they would really be like, "You sure you don't want to stay for the game? <laughs> uh, the game's great." Um, but but really, the the practices are the focus. The thing I find fascinating about this time of year, for our purposes, when we are evaluating players we are uh, evaluating how they play in d3 uh, what their impact on their team and their conference and and the nation is um and you know it's easier to do with guys with stats than it is for uh, for offensive linemen but usually you know between all conference um all region teams you can pretty much get a good handle on what kind of guys are, are all american level linemen but everything that makes you an all-american in d3 is not what translates uh, or projects to you being a, a viable player in the NFL. You know, some of the best NFL guys we've had in the past 10 or 15 years have been like uh, Jason Trusnick, like a, a career special teamer in the NFL, uh, Jeremy Urban, somebody who was uh, always made the roster as a as a receiver, um, wasn't ever a guy who put up big numbers, but was a guy who um, Todd Haley really liked and, and sort of brought Jeremy to every stop that he was at to, to set the tone for the more talented wide receivers. Um, so there, there are ways to basically function and, and, and last in the NFL, but we never figure out, or I shouldn't say we never, it's hard for us to figure out who those guys are just by watching them play on, on Saturdays, not to mention we're trying to keep track of 250 teams. So right. when you hear the names like Michael Joseph, debut cornerback, uh, emerge, Brandon Shedd, who's probably a guy you, you, you know of, he's been mentioned on the podcast before, but not someone, um, who um, who you necessarily would be the first person you think of um, as an NFL prospect. Uh, I, I love this part of the season. You know, Andy Reeman, I mean, a long snapper. Uh, Kyle Miller, you know, made his uh, sort of got a foot in the door in the NFL yep. um, for that for that same reason. So there, the great thing about scouting is these guys are are, are looking under every rock um, for talent, and we're some of the the, the rocks that they search under, and uh, and some names emerge, and there may be a few other names. Uh, that emerge between now and the draft process. And again, very few D3 players get drafted, but there'll definitely be a dozen, um, maybe even more than that, a couple dozen in um, in NFL camps, especially the rookie camps where they where guys aren't guaranteed to make the 90-man roster. And uh, there'll be a lot of opportunity for, for someone from D3 to open eyes and, and, and you know, just takes a, uh, an opportunity for, uh, for someone to break through. We're going to talk more about those guys in a future podcast. Uh, we have plenty of time uh, before the draft comes up at the end of April. Um, hopefully that means we get our April podcast in before the NFL draft. Remind me to look at the calendar for that. Um, other things going on this time of year, of course, coaching changes and teams are putting out their schedules. Keith and I will talk about that a little bit later, but uh, we're going to get to, to our interviews here in just a moment. 
But I'd also like to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is currently not sponsored by anybody. However, you could be, this time of year especially, reaching an audience that is basically exclusively decision makers in Division Three football. Coaches who need equipment, who can influence decisions to replace turf, uh, you know, in, introduce a video board or replace a video board at a stadium, uh, all sorts of things by sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here, right before we went to break, so think about that. And if you know somebody who, uh, or a, a company that should be trying to reach the Division Three market, drop me a line at uh, pat.coleman at d3sports.com. Now on the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by, I guess we'd call you a senior or future graduate, uh, Patrick Mohorsik of the College of Worcester, who, uh, among many things, was the captain of the AFCA Good Works team and had a, a fantastic experience around that. But uh, Patrick, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. I think this is, it's probably, you're probably not the first Patrick I've had on the podcast, but it feels a little weird actually to be uh, introducing <laughs> It's like introducing myself in the third person. Obviously, there are a lot of things to talk about, but I wanted to kind of cut right to the chase because you had this fantastic experience uh, with the AFCA Good Works team and then at the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans. So there's probably many pieces of that story. And why don't I just let you launch into it and we'll see where it takes us? No, yeah. So, you know, so first I got received the news probably back in October. Um, I just found out I was going to New Orleans and then probably about a month later they had the fan voting for uh the captain and i was i never really thought i was gonna win um you're going against guys from stanford penn state and all really honestly all those teams had to do was go in their stadium and say hey everyone in front of 104,000 people just put the link and say vote for this link and i think those guys would have won but you know i think the d3 football community really rallied around me and uh, including the worcester community and i got so before i even went to new orleans got to go to atlanta um, that's where I was there for the college football award ceremony. You know, got to um, have an interview with Tom Rinaldi, and that was just an uh, awesome experience. You know, going to interview to interview, you know, being in the back room with, you know, I was the only guy who didn't play professional, um, big time college football. <laughs> that's so, okay. We, well, we might sometimes <laughs> refer to it as semi professional football. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not on the podcast, but maybe behind the scenes. Or that might just exactly. be me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe, however you want to take it, but. Um, so that was really cool um, to be back there with guys like Saquon Barkley, Baker Mayfield, um, you know, JT Barrett, uh, you know, got to meet Kirk Herbstreet and, you know, with guys who are just, you know, extremely talented. Then you have me right there. So um, that was such a cool experience to meet those guys. All of them are really great kids and pretty cool to meet them, you know, person and just see, you know, everything, you know, they're all they're all really nice guys. So obviously they get to walk the red carpet. Um, sign autographs, get to be on ESPN. And obviously, I didn't think I'd have that big of a segment. I didn't think, you know, when they told me I had an interview, I, I was like, oh, okay. Like, I'm sure I'm just kind of like, I would do it when it was that commercial break. And then when I went to a production meeting, like, no, like, you're slotted for a 7.30 interview like with Tom Rinaldi live. And I go, what? <laughs> so, wow. Oh, live. Um, just live. No big deal. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going, okay. Uh, but no, it was a really good opportunity to kind of represent D3 football, get my message out there, represent Worcester. And that was a ton of fun. You know, I've never been to the College Football Hall of Fame, and that was just all the pageantry and getting to uh, you know be escorted around like a big shot, um, you know, and escalades and everything. So that was really cool. And then obviously going to New Orleans, um, I really got to even connect with more with the guys even more because 
Atlanta was an in and out trip. That was basically a day trip. Then obviously New Orleans was a four day, yeah, four days, I believe. And that was where you get to meet, you know, guys like, you know, from Stanford, Penn State. Some of those guys are gonna be, you know, uh, you know, first round draft picks. Yeah. So I think be able to con- connect with those guys and hear about their stories. I mean, I talked to the uh, the guy from uh, Stanford's defensive tackle. He's gonna rep out two twenty five, probably forty five times. Like he wants to break the benching <laughs> record. So I'm going, I'm going. Wow, uh, good for you. Um, you know, he just he's just a well, brick wall. So how many? Probably, what would what would be your personal record? My personal record's twenty seven. Okay. So and I thought I thought I mean, that was pretty good. That's a legitimate uh, number. Yeah. Yeah, like I thought, I was like, okay, a solid number. At least, at least I had bragging rights while I was there. Uh, at least it wasn't like totally like, oh, I only get it seven times. Right. But no, so I at least had that. But, you know, this guy was a brick wall. When you just want to think of a human walking door or whatever, he's, uh, he's what you think of. Um, you know, his, he was talking about his life going to be after football and just totally different than what mine's going to be. And to really, you know, just hear about the backstories of playing big time college football and, You'll hear about those guys' stories and just other D3, you know, um, from Bethel to St. John's. St. John's uh, having that huge rivalry game. Like, you know, that's, With, that's incredible. Their stories, just kind of different D3 stories, different things. And, um, you know, being t- hear about their service projects. Um, you know, Medicaid from Amherst, who want, you know, he's Reese. He wants to be a, cam- a campus minister. You know, just all, all these kids really want to influence other people. So it's really inspiring to hear everyone else's story. You know, obviously, you have to meet Tim Tebow, do a service project together. Um, you know, I got to meet Dan, the the lead singer of Imagine Dragons. He was actually in my volunteer group, so him and I got to talk a little bit, like how he got into music and just okay. kind of him growing up in Las Vegas and really, you know, again, didn't know him on a personal level as well, which is really cool. You know, it's a once in a lifetime experience. You've got to be in a parade and throw beads at people, and there's a, <laughs> there's a certain like you get a certain amount of satisfaction throwing beads at screaming fans. So. <laughs> Awesome. That was a lot of fun, and you know, obviously you have to go to the Sugar Bowl and be on the field for a little bit, and you know we were there pregame, just hanging out, playing, tossing the football around uh, beforehand, just enjoy the game, and then enjoy each other's company, and you know the next day we all kind of went our separate ways. You know everyone there was just so inspiring. Everyone there was such a good kid, and every one of those kids deserved to be captain. I was just really fortunate that uh, you know the, the the Fighting Scott fans and the D three football community really rallied around me. That is awesome. Uh, tell me a little bit and tell us a little bit about the project that you've been involved in, uh, Men Working for Change. Men Working for Change was just kind of my sophomore year during like the Ray Rice allegations and Greg Hardy. You know, people just had this negative connotation around football. We were like, you know, that's not who football players are. That's, you know, that's just not what we stand for. And so we decided this group was around earlier in the 2000s and disbanded for a couple of years. And we found out about it. I'm like, hey, like, let's try to bring this back. So myself, Two seniors and two juniors got together and started it. And when we did a lot of, you know, we do a lot of campus events such as, you know, spreading about bystander intervention, about seeing what if your friend is in it, you know, in a, in a violent relationship, what can you do to prevent that and help them get out of that? Um, and do we do also just talk about what a toxic relationship looks like? Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, Yardley Love case. She was a University of Virginia lacrosse player. Um, and her boyfriend played men's lacrosse there, and he actually beat her to death because she was in a violent relationship. And when people were looking back on it, they're like, how do we not see the signs of this? And just the friends and everyone was just sort of like, oh, that was her business. Like, we weren't going to get involved. So they started the One Love campaign. And we were facilitators in that when they came to Worcester. 
and you show a little movie about your love. About it's a pretty intense movie, and it really moves you about that situation she was in. And then you discuss with people what what were the red flags, you know. It really goes back to this kind of circle of violence, uh, it's called, where you're kind of that honeymoon stage, your first in relationship. Then the first kind of red flag is where he's always asking you where you are and he's always showing up when you're with your friends or something. Then you move into that first physical you know, assault and then it goes back to this, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to change. Then things go back into that honeymoon stage and it's that circle of violence. When you see that, what do you do as a bystander? to prevent that and just educate people on if they're in a toxic relationship, how to get out, talk to the resources. We work with 180, which is the rape crisis center here in Worcester, and they train us. And, you know, we tell people, hey, if they're in a toxic relationship, talk to these professionals. And we're not a licensed professional. We get trained. But if there's anything like that, we report, we send them towards 180. You know, maybe it'll offer them a place to stay if, you know, the boyfriend's really being a stalker. We really want to get a message out there that it's not just a woman's issue. I think when people think of sexual assault, they think it's a woman's issue and men kind of roll their eyes at it. And we want to say, no, if men can talk about this issue and talk about how it's wrong to take advantage of a woman, to take advantage of a drunk girl, how it's wrong to hit a woman, how it's we have to treat them with respect, um, we can really make a huge impact. And, you know, Tim Tebow you know, he was revolutionary in what he talked about when no one talked about faith in a football locker room before really Tim Tebow came along. Now all of a sudden people talk about how their faith has really helped them. So I hope I can be that sort of revolutionary and let's talk about respecting people and, you know, maybe not taking advantage of drunk women. And, you know, you're not going into the locker room saying, oh, hey, I'm Patrick Horsick. Let me talk to you about sexual assault. No, you're going in there just in those casual conversations where you hear something that's not right. Like, oh, man, you know, I was out last night. I Everyone, you know, there's this really, you know, this girl was almost passed out, but I tried, I was, I was going to take her home and, you know, it just didn't work out. A friend took me away. You know, then that's when you jump in and say, hey, that's wrong. You know, and here's why. And it's just those many conversations you can have and make it a topic of conversation. That's really what's going to really uh, spur the change. What's the next phase of this? What do you do next? And how do you kind of carry that forth into your professional career post Worcester? My next career steps are always going to be is where can I help the most people? Um, I'm afraid of blood, so I can't be a doctor. <laughs> so I figured the next step for me is to use politics, the next way to influence people and make a difference. Um, and that's where I believe right now. Um, I do hope to go to law school at some point. Um, you know, I want to get a JD and an MBA, do a joint program. But you know, I'm going to do what I think is the next best step to help people. I really love the, um, the connection between politics and business. And that's kind of where I... I think in like economic development, that's kind of where my passion lies right now. Um, but I love football. I really want to be around football for the rest of my life, whether it's coaching, whether it's, you know, I don't know, media, whether it be, you know, I'm a local commentator or, you know, running a podcast like yourself. Um, you know, I want to be around it. And I think that's, if I can get my message, wherever, wherever way I can get my message out of helping others and really influencing others. That's what's going to be my next step, whether it's through men working for change at a post Worcester level or is it going to be through another organization or I start or join and or it's maybe the job I work at. But whatever way I can help people, that's my next step. It was obviously a very emotional season for you guys at Worcester. Uh, you know, when uh, one of your fellow offensive linemen, Clayton yep. Guy, uh, passed away early in the season, yes. you know, obviously some of this now is a few months back. But what was how did you Absolutely. guys react, that sort of thing? 
um, it was a shock to all of us. Um, yeah, we were actually absolutely were three and zero. We just kicked the crap out of a rival, and we put up thirty five points over Ohio Wesley in the first half. I mean, we were just we were rolling, and we we knew we were good this year. I think you know we were we were at a point of okay, we're gonna keep rolling. We're gonna win the conference. We're gonna beat Wittenberg. We're gonna beat Wabash. We're gonna beat DePaul, and we're gonna win the conference. And that was our mindset. We had DePaul the next week. It was already a week of adversity because we had to travel to DePaul. So we usually have practice on sun on Sunday, but we have Mondays off. But that Monday we knew we had to practice, so we didn't have a day off because we have a Friday travel day. Um, okay. After the game, you know, uh, I'm usually the last person out of the locker room, and I saw Clayton get in an ambulance, just he was having cramping issues. So I was like, oh, okay, like he's just going to go get IV. Next day, you know, we come to the locker room, something was off. You just knew captain's meetings was canceled. So I the captains usually meet after the game with the coach Colapri. That didn't happen. And you just, I, I remember texting guys, like even coach, like, hey, how's Clayton doing? You know, like, you know, I saw, and they're like, oh, you know, he's, I remember that night coach was, oh, he's fine, just dehydrated that night. So I'd assumed he got back in time and, Obviously, we came to the locker room. We had doctors walk in, and the coaches, you have to tell, they were distraught. And, um, you know, having, you know, 90 grown men crying in the same room is definitely an experience that I'll never forget and a grim experience. And then, um, yeah, I mean, Clayton came in with me um, at my recruiting class. He played next to me for three years. I played right tackle. He was the right guard. And then when I moved down to center, I was there next to him for two years. Um, you know, guy where you really grew with um, – you know, and it was it was it was tough. I mean, all the vigils. We, I, you know, I was asked to speak at all the vigils. I was asked to plan something literally two hours with the administration to hold a vigil. Um, so, I mean, obviously, at that time, you know, when you're choosing chosen a team captain, you don't expect to ever do something like this. But you're something that people turn people turn to in a time of despair, not just you know to say heads or tails, the coin toss. Um, you know, so obviously, you know, I had I, I cried, I mourned. Um, I told everyone I loved them. I think, you know, saying I love you to the guys became a big thing that whole season. Even now, we all say I love you now because we know how much we grew from that as brothers. And then all of a sudden I had to pull myself together and say, we got to honor him. I got to be the rock for this team, even for our coaches. You know, the coaches were kind of taking, you know, some coaches took it harder than others. And I had to be a rock and say, hey, this is, uh, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to move on. And just how we're going to honor him. And, you know, it was one of the harder experiences I've ever had to go through. Um, you know, obviously you go from the, one of the best days of your life to probably one, probably, yeah, it, which probably is the worst day of my life. Um, something I don't understand to this day why, but um, all I can do is learn from it and uh, continue to grow from it and continue to uh, live out my life um, in his name. How does the program honor him going forward? So we actually just had our banquet yesterday. Um, we just instituted the Clayton Guybe Award. Um, we have a lot of awards, and all the seniors received the Clayton Guybe Award this year. Um, what is it? Honors a guy who is both, um, you know, stellar on the football field, but more importantly, stellar in the classroom and in the community and a man of faith. Clayton was a huge man of faith, and that's how we try to honor him. Is you know, they always say someone dies when you stop saying his name, and we don't ever want Clayton to die. And so we're going to continue to honor him. The W Association, which is our alumni, sports alumni association, really put that together for us. And we're very appreciative of them for doing so. And, um, you know, so that's how we're going to honor him going forward. We obviously, um, during the season, had his number painted in our end zone. And it was pretty crazy. Our first home game back from that, ish, uh, that uh, incident, 
we uh, were playing Wabash, who was number 13 in the country. And we took him down to the wire that game. But the first play, mm-hmm. we had a great play call. We knew, hey, we're going to take a shot deep and we're going to shock him right, right then and there. We were in a play action. Uh, safety rolled down to play the run because Wabash was always so aggressive on the run. And we threw it over the top of them and scored a 60-yard touchdown and to that end zone where his number was. And, you know, obviously, Strasbaugh, who had a hell of a year this year, um, you know, scored, took a knee, and put that ball right there where it belonged, ran his number. And um, that was a pretty cool experience. Um, be back at home in front of everyone, you know, capacity crowd, um, honoring Clayton. I think I've never heard our stadium so loud. Um, you know, that was one of those, that's one of those moments where, you know, you can't explain. But that was an awesome experience. And we'll continue moving forward just by living our lives the best way that Clayton would have wanted us to. I know I have to let you get to class. Of course, this is <laughs> this is Division Three. Two quick questions before we go. Yeah. First of all, uh, on the podcast, we make note of unusual pronunciations and how people okay. uh, get them wrong. So how many different ways have you heard the name of your school pronounced? Oh, that's a good question. Probably three or four. Because it's Worcester, but you hear a lot of Wooster. Pronunciation 101. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Worcester. What else do you hear? You hear the college of because no one wants to say it. Everyone knows like they don't know how to say Worcester. Worcester. So they don't want to say Worcester. Worcester say, oh, you go to the college of, right? And you're like, yes. And then you have T-Cow, which is kind of the abbreviation everyone calls it for the college of Worcester. So everyone calls it T-Cow. So not different pronunciation. That's why I've heard our school referred to. So yeah, that's probably that's probably about it. But literally, it's it's either it's Worcester, but a lot of people say Worcester. And if you're a native to the city of Worcester, they hate that more than anything. So you don't want to get it get it wrong when you're in the city of Worcester. And then quickly, I can't let people go on on this podcast without a uh, Super Bowl prediction. Uh, Super Bowl prediction. Oh man, I would say Patriots over Eagles. I'm gonna go. 35-24. Um, you, can't, you can't take – Tom Brady in the Super Bowl is just too good. I'm a big fan of Matt Patricia, um, a guy, D3 guy. D3 guy, and, yeah. And he has the best beard in, in all of NFL. And he was an engineer too. My brother's an engineer. So I'm going to root for him because I'm, I'm excited about him going to Detroit. I think he's going to be a very good head coach. I love the – you know they, he always – in the second half, you saw it again when they played um, – yeah, the Jaguars. So I'm in the second half. They put it together again on defense. So I really do. I do think that, you know, Tom Brady obviously is always the X back. But I really like Matt Patricia in that defense. I think he's a very uh, underappreciated guy, one of the best coordinators. and can't wait to see what he does as a head coach. So I'm going to go with that. I think Eagles are leading. I think the Eagles might be leading at halftime just, in, just so they can come back in Patriots fashion. But yeah, I feel pretty good about that prediction. Keith, Patrick Mahorchik talks about a subject that really should get more attention in terms of uh... – uh, standing up for people who suffer abuse, and, and he explained it much better than I did right there, too. I thought the difference was there are probably signs that we all see or we all can recognize, but it, it was inspiring that that they chose to do something about it, That and, and that laying out an actual action plan, you know, what to do when you see it and how to recognize the red flags is actually something that we as men can uh, internalize, we can... In a group setting, you can talk. You can talk about that with your with your friends without coming off preachy. You know, you can just be like, mm, "Dude, that's not cool." You know, or, or 
whatever the case may be, because he he did mention in an interview, it's very hard to to pull somebody aside and and you know preach your faith to them or preach, um, hey, this is this is not the way you should be behaving, or hey, dude, that that's wrong. But when it's coming from your friends and it's in a group setting, and especially when you're a freshman or sophomore, you're kind of a young kid and you're impressionable, and nobody teaches you these things. There's no class in school how to treat women. It's either like you, your experience is very much what you grew up around. Um, I think it's good to have those kind of influences. And for for Patrick and and the groups that he's uh, aligned with, for them to actually lay out a, a plan of um, and it just to basically open up a dialogue between uh, young men, I think is, is really outstanding because that's that's actually action that you can use rather than kind of like textbook. And eh, this is what you this is what you know, what it is and. Yeah, you should recognize it. I felt like they took the extra step of of putting it into into uh, terms that people can really relate to. Two D three guys in a row have actually been elected captain of this Good Works team. Last year, it was Brett Casper for UW Oshkosh. If you don't know the story behind that, go find our Gallardi Trophy coverage because that's basically the exact. Uh, uh, the exact same story, uh, but what a what a fantastic experience for him! And I know, of course, he was not the other, only D three guy there, but he uh, is kind of becomes the representative when he gets elected captain. Yeah, there were a handful of other guys. He mentions uh, Reese Foy from Amherst. There was Josh Dalkey from Bethel. There was Tyler Schubert from Franklin and Marshall, and Will Gillick from St. John's. In addition to Patrick Mahorsik uh, from Worcester on uh, on the AFCA uh, Good Works team. Yeah, I love that interview with Patrick. You can see that the the future in politics or coaching or or what have you may be there because he's someone who you can listen to without uh, getting bored, to be quite quite honest. And hopefully for the podcast, that that's definitely a good thing for the podcast. But hopefully you felt that way uh, as a listener. He's super humble. You know, the the way he talked about representing D3 and having that big time experience, I think is how a lot of us would feel in the same situation. So we can all relate to that. I kind of wonder, I want to ask him what's wrong with only doing seven times in the, in the 225. Um, <laughs> no, it's been be a long se- time. That'd be seven more than I could manage. Well, it, it's been a long time for me. I don't know if I could do any anymore, but um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I was in single digits. Okay. But but he's an old lineman. Uh, DBs, you know, the, the the job for DBs is not necessarily to to, to hit reps um, in the bench. I thought the inspiring part about the whole the whole thing was really just seeing the passion uh, that that he has for life and the desire to take action and to help people. And I think that's something that a lot of people in D three can can relate to. And to think that as much impact as what his work has done and the impact that it had on him having the uh, opportunity to represent Division Three in that on that big stage, obviously not even close to the most important or most impactful thing that happened at Worcester this year. No, and and I, uh, you know, regarding Clayton Guy, I, I appreciate that um, Patrick was was not trite about it. You know, he said in an interview to this day, I don't understand, and I, I think if that happens to you, someone close to you, you know, and, and most people can can relate to having uh, a deaf of someone close to them at some point in their lives, you know, you don't necessarily, you're not able to compartmentalize it and really make sense of it all the time. Um, Clayton Guy did die of, of natural causes. That was the the ruling. And I'm not sure if anybody had um, mentioned that in the interview, but um, Patrick said, someone dies when you stop saying his name. And I wonder if this is something 
thing that almost every D3 program can relate to. At Randolph-Macon, it was a, a guy named Tad DePriest who died in 1992 in a car accident while he was volunteering uh, with young children. He was driving them back from Putt-Putt, and uh, the children survived the accident, and Tad did not to this day. Though there's a foundation in his name, and that foundation runs a camp for kids. And the point of me mentioning all that, um, besides personalizing the experience, is that Tad was a person that played at RMC uh, before I got there. I know his story, and now I'm relaying this story here on the podcast. So whether it's Clayton Guybe or, or Parker Moore or Derek Sheely or any other handful of, of uh, young men who who went through something on the field or suffered a tragedy, um around a D3 program, once you enter into this brotherhood surrounding football, it's quite possible you'll never be the same. And it, it's it's quite possible 20 or 25 years later, people might still be speaking Clayton Guy's name. The one other thing that stands out is that moment he described um, in the touchdown pass and, and putting it right down on uh, on the spot in the end zone that was uh, marked for Clayton. You know, that's really one of the special moments probably of his career and, and for everyone who was at Worcester that day and, and last season, it's obviously not the way you want to have a moment like that, but you don't get to choose your path in life necessarily. You just get to choose how you live it. Wabash actually won that game 33, 28, but Patrick Mahorsik remembers it less for the loss and, and more for that moment. And that's probably a moment he'll remember for the rest of his life. And uh, at least that's how it sounded the way he explained it. And we're back on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast with Brockport head coach Jason Mangoni. All you did was uh, win the AFCA Coach of the Year, brought your team to the national semifinals, and and a team I think that we thought could win the Empire 8, and Keith and I ranked as highly as we could in our preseason uh, top 249, I forget whatever the number was last year. Still, nonetheless, uh, a really surprising season and a really impressive season. So, So congratulations on that, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. When did you know that this was a team that had the potential to run the table, first of all, in the Empire 8? Because that's not something that's done all that often in the first place. Yeah, well, I don't know if we ever, uh, you know, thought, I guess, that long term. I knew, uh, I think our, our staff and our players knew in the off season that we had a, a good um, roster and, and obviously a great work ethic um, from top to bottom. And so I, I, I think we all knew that we would be in contention for sure. And, and people... I guess, uh, you know, we finished seven and three in the regular season in 16 and lost all three games within the last few minutes. So we were close um, and we did have a a great contingency of returners. So um, I think leading into the season, we knew we would be contending for it. But you just truly never know how a football season is going to play out just with the fact of injuries. And um, sometimes you don't know who's going to play week to week, let alone practice day to day. So. Those are things that I think make our sport more unique um, than anything. Um, but I think in terms of during the season, we were we, we played, uh, obviously we came out and played a good Hobart team on the road and, and were successful. But then we uh, we were 4-0 and zero heading into Cortland. And they uh, are always obviously well coached and have great players. And they were coming off a bye. So we knew we were going to have our hands full traveling down there. And we went into the locker room down 28-17. And uh, they were playing some inspired, good football. Um, again, they have very good players and are well coached. And there was a, just a calmness in the locker room that I haven't seen here in an awfully long time. And uh, we came out, scored right away, and then, you know, outscored them 35 to 10 in the second half to win. So I think that's when we kind of knew that 
you know, the, the problem that we had in 16 was finishing and, and we were able to overcome a deficit and finish that game and, and obviously went on to uh, win a few more games. Yeah, there's a lot of focus around uh, Joe Germanario, who's the sophomore quarterback, but you had a very veteran squad uh, this year, a lot of uh, a lot of seniors on both sides of the ball. Yeah, and that's one thing that we've been trying to get to. And, you know, you, you have a recruiting class, um, our first full recruiting class are this year's uh, group of seniors. And, you know, you, the last few years, we knew what we had talent-wise, but we were very inexperienced at our upper levels in, in the sense of, you know, 13, or I'm sorry, 14, 15, 16. We just didn't have enough seniors to lean on to to overcome those tight games and this year we did um and uh, we are going to be graduating 21 kids that uh we're extremely proud of and having the the good uh, a group of guys uh, in terms of numbers as well is is huge to uh to lean on in those tough times and those close games at the end um you know and i think we lose you know we lose five guys on offense and four guys on defense so even though we lose nine, we still have a great contingency of guys coming back that we're uh, awfully excited about for 18. One of the things that coaches who uh, who bring teams deep into the playoffs on a regular basis talk about is having the extra five weeks, four weeks of practice. You obviously had a, a very similar situation now, and maybe you won't get to see the results of it for uh, you know for another year or so. But how much does it have? How much of an impact does it really have having that extra time for those guys who are you know? Uh, you know, getting their first playoff experience. Yeah, I think it's huge. Uh, you know, it, especially for our level where we're not allowed to have pads in our non-traditional, which I don't think is all that huge of a deal. Um, also, because I think doing the fundamentals and, and whatnot with without pads is, is also a great thing. So, um, but it's great. I mean, if you figure it's a half season of, of football, so um, it's monstrous for our young guys to get those extra reps against our ones and twos. And, and maybe they were a three or four during the practice week. Um, but to have an extra four weeks is, is awesome. And it's obviously just doing the reps and just getting down what we do schematically and mentally that will give us a head start going into our non-traditional and then obviously going into our fall season, especially with the shorter fall camp, you know, with obviously losing doubles and, and being the same length. You know, we went from, what is that, 25 practices to 21. Yeah. So having that extra four weeks will help compensate for the fact that we're not getting those 25 in the fall. Looking back at uh, the 2017 playoff, run, oh, first of all, I have to ask, do you still have the beard? Uh, it shaved it off, but I'm regrowing. So uh, right. we'll see. You know, my kids, my uh, my young boys want me to grow it back the way I had it. So we'll see. My wife, maybe not so much that long, but <laughs> new figure. Season new beard, start fresh. I was going to say uh, it's nice that uh, it's nice that your kids are in favor of it, but I was pretty sure that's not the only opinion that matters. <laughs> Absolutely not. They're secondary in that in that respect. <laughs> um, so when you saw the playoff uh, bracket kind of stack up uh, ahead of you, um, you know. Uh, obviously, sometimes the first round of the Division Three playoffs in a 32-team bracket has a lot of uh, uh, a lot of games that could lead to blowouts, and you certainly had one of them. But you know, to see uh, the pen- potential to face Wesley, the potential to face Delaware Valley, both teams that have gone deep into the playoffs uh, in the recent past, maybe the not so recent past, and then Mary Harden Baylor uh, possibly looming at the other end, or someone like St. Thomas, for example. What did you What did you think when you saw that uh, bracket unveil? Well, obviously, first and foremost, it was exciting to see our name on there. And, uh, you know, first time since 2003 mm-hmm. that we've made the NCA. So that's, I guess, the first thing. And and obviously, uh, our focus was, as you mentioned, uh, our first round game in Plymouth State, who, you know, being 9-1 and, and only giving up, I believe, eight points a game or nine points a game. Um, 
And, and that's probably the biggest thing that we saw was the, the four teams that we had laid in front of us, I think we're all in the top 10 in scoring defense in the country along with ourselves. So we knew that um, potential for some, some close games and some low scoring games was on the horizon. But, you know, when you see teams like a Wesley in, uh, in round two, who's been, to, I believe, 13 in a row of the Sweet 16. And, you know, my earlier days in coaching here at Brockport, we played, played them uh, 2,000 on, and every game led to an NCAA berth um, for either team. And obviously great battles, and I have utmost respect for that program and, and their talent and, and obviously watching them on film. They're, they're the real deal. And then having to travel to Del Val and, and, you know, nine senior starters on their defense, also a top 10 um, I believe a top six uh, scoring defense in the country. So we knew that'd be a, an unbelievable battle. And then whenever you have the the title national champions before your name and Mary Harden Baylor, obviously that's going to be a tough battle. So um, a lot of great names are on there. Obviously when there's a small pool of teams out of the, uh, the number that we have in our, our level, um, you're going to face good, good programs and you just hope you play your best when you need it. I, I kind of forgot that you go back to the ACFC days at Brockport. Oh yeah, yep. Started coaching here in '99. <laughs> yeah, and and I know uh, and, and played and graduated from there as well. Is it uh, in the Empire Eight? Do you think that uh, Brockport football's finally found a, a home where they're going to stay for a while? I sure hope so. Uh, we love the opponents we have. We love the fact that we don't have many overnight travels, and um, you know it's 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 great because it's it's also for our kids. You know, on our roster, they may not necessarily personally know a lot of guys on other rosters but they know of them. So that just kind of adds a lot of the fun to it too. When you're preparing for guys, Oh yeah, that guy was in my section. And I remember, you know, seeing he was all this, all that. So it adds that level uh, of excitement where maybe when you play, you know, teams that out of state, you just have no connection in that respect. So I think that kind of adds to it. Um, and, and it's obviously good football. And I think, uh, you know, whoever comes out of our league is prepared to at least battle in the, uh, in the NCAs, you know, depending, uh, um, obviously, the outcome doesn't really matter, but they're going to be prepped in terms of schematics and physically. I hear coaches talk about, and and maybe some of this is facetious and, and maybe some of it isn't, um, is that one of the uh, detractions of going deep in the playoffs is that you get behind on recruiting. You had four weeks where instead of being out on the road uh, with your full staff like you would be, you were preparing for another game. And obviously preparing for another game is awesome. But then does it really set you back? Or is there some cachet that you can then go out and say, hey, we went to the Division Three National Semifinals, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think, you know, I can see both ends of the spectrum. I think it for one, having not had this experience as a staff, obviously we kind of had to... Uh, navigate through it on the fly but now we'll have a better hopefully have this situation happen again in our program so we have to kind of relive it but I think by playing in essence you're recruiting um, because of what you said you know we're, we're going deep into December and, and obviously playing in the national semifinal when we went on the road for for the two weeks that we had and, and obviously we did recruiting from May on so we already had you know our targets and, and all that kind of stuff already laid out but but kids were eager for us to to enter the schools uh, just based on our success. And that's what we want. We want the best kids that want to play alongside the best kids. So those kids that were, were geeked up to see us and, uh, you know, had known about our success and that had watched our game on ESPN3, um, those were, were obviously very important for us. And, and the uh, the response that we've gotten so far has been outstanding. And, and uh, we're going to take advantage of it. 
How about the response on campus for for the playoff run? I think we saw a lot of we saw a lot of action on social media about it. I know sometimes that uh, at these uh, large state schools, it's not necessarily so easy to get the attention of a, a large undergraduate student body, but it seems like you guys did. Yeah, and, you know, and, and hats off to our administration for uh, for you know obviously publicizing us on campus, and they had a little pep rally before um, on campus. Unfortunately, a very cold day. Um, but, uh, for, for, before the playoffs and that was fun. And like you said, social media was buzzing. Um, the local TV stations were here pretty much every day. We were, we got into the local newspaper. So that all adds to not only the campus, um, but obviously our community. And, and I think people were excited about what went on and obviously having the opportunity to host two playoff games, you know, gave us a total of seven home games, which is outstanding. The most we've ever had. Um, so those are all things that just obviously and, and our athletics as a whole is outstanding. Our, our programs top down fall, winter, spring are all very good. So so hopefully we just added to the athletic spirit on campus that will continue on through the winter and obviously through the spring. Uh, you guys lose a couple of key pieces uh, in the secondary, especially uh, Jake O'Connell is a senior. Uh, you lose. Uh, uh, Julius Misro, a couple of key guys up front on the offensive line as well. I know you mentioned uh, 20 plus seniors. What does Brockport, what do the Golden Eagles look like for 2018? Yeah, well, you know, as you said, our, our up front O line in terms of offensively, we'll start there. That's that's where we got to rebuild. And, you know, we have a, a transfer or two coming in already that we're excited about. And, uh, you know, we have some young guys in our program that have, again, benefited from those four extra weeks and, and playing behind four guys that made first team all conference and one guy that very well should have made first team all conference that got second team. So, you know, they've learned from the best and obviously coach Potter, offensive line coach does a phenomenal job with those guys. So, so we'll be ready. Um, and you know, what's behind them and having a, a returning quarterback that now has a year and a half and really almost two full years with the extra games uh, under his belt that, you know, has a lot to work on in a great way. Um, you know, when a guy can throw for 3,400 and run for over 500 and has a lot to work on, that's fun. Um, our receivers are back. We have three of our four receivers back. Tailback's back. Got a uh, couple other transfer tailbacks in. Um, so offensively, I think we'll be fine. We just got to gel up front, and, and we'll have time to do that, and, and then we'll hopefully go out and, and put some points on the board. And then defensively, uh, you know, losing Misro, who was a guy that, you know, although we knew what his ability was um, internally, really showed what he could do. Obviously, you know, being a 6'2", 210-pound outside backer that can run uh, is obviously always a lot of fun to have. Um, and then our two inside backers, Navy and, and uh, Szymanski, both seniors, but great in, in the knowledge of the game, which is so important. They knew everything that we did, hands um, upside down. So that's great. Now we'll, we'll make this announcement here. Uh, Jake O'Connell will be back. He is uh, going to take his red shirt. So he will be back with us next year, which is a huge uh, boost for our team and obviously our defense. You know, having a guy that's, I think, has, I don't even know how many interceptions the last two years, but not only interceptions, but he takes him back for touchdowns. So, um, he had a red shirt when he first got with us because of an injury. So he will be taking that. So he'll be back. Um, so obviously having him is huge. Um, so we only lose really one guy out of our secondary. I'm just, um, I'm just making a note for our preseason all American team. You can continue. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, losing Brunson's big, um, cause obviously played, uh, obviously a lot of football for us and did a great job, but we have some guys in the wing that uh, are eager to, uh, to see the field. So we should be, you know, uh, expectations to be outstanding. And we have our entire rotation of our D lineback 
which, you know, we did lead the nation in sacks um, this year, and, and we should hopefully uh, be battling for that position again next year. You were talking about the things that Germanario has to do to improve. What are you looking to see from him in 2018? One, don't take the unnecessary hits. You know, I think um, Joe is exactly what we want in the sense that he is the most competitive guy probably on our team. Um, I think if you were to play him in table tennis, he'd want to destroy you. Um, (laughs) And that's the kind of kids that we want. You know, we'd rather have to temper you down than pick you up. And, And so he's a guy that we absolutely have to temper down. He would prefer on first and 10 to rush for nine yards and lower his head rather than slide and take seven, which is what we're asking him to do. So that is for sure something that has to happen. Um, And then just taking sometimes the underneath throw rather than maybe trying to squeeze something downfield. Now he only threw a handful of interceptions, um, but we can even eliminate that number more so going forward. He's just so darn talented and has so much confidence in himself that you know, and, and again, that's a great trait to have. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I think his growth can improve by lessening the number of contacts and just taking sometimes things that are there without squeezing something downfield. Yeah. What do you guys take away from that uh, Mary Harden Baylor game at the end of the season? I think other than the first handful of minutes, you guys played them pretty straight up, especially uh, especially defensively. So, what what kind of separates you guys from being able to compete at that next level in Division Three? Well, I think, you know, A, coming out without, um, you know, kind of getting caught up in the moment. I mean, it was going to be in our hats off to Mary Harden Baylor. What a classy organization, classy program, classy, classy players. Um, obviously a phenomenal venue, you know, and, and maybe we got a little too caught up in kind of where we were and who we were playing in terms of the name. And, and that didn't happen the first 13 games. Um and we were going to have to play a perfect game to beat them irregardless. Um, and, you know, we throw a bad interception early on. We, we fumble early on, and next thing you know, it's 14 nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what we'll take away from it is the fact that now we have a measuring stick. So, you know, it, it's phenomenal to play a Wesley and a Del Val because those teams are, are very good and, and maybe aren't – I don't know. I, I know Wesley's viewed on a, on a very national scale because of what they always do and – Um, but until an East team will beat a South or a North or whatever, and usually we're crossing the path with, uh, the St. Thomas, the Mary Harden Baylor and Mount union, you know, and we've got to beat those teams. So, um, I think for one, we get to settle down a little bit earlier on, which I hope we take away from that game. And just the overall experience of obviously chartering a flight and heading down there and leaving on a Thursday, you know, staying in a hotel for a few days. Um, I, I know, if we had to play again today, we'd be better prepared. Just having done it once yeah. uh, doesn't guarantee that we'll go down and win, but we'll be um, we'd be a, a lot more suited to compete at a better level than what we did. But our defense, hats off to them for competing. Um, offensively, competed. We just you know you get inside the five three times. You got to try to you got to score. You can't uh, walk away with a goose egg there. Last thing, and I'll let you go. We're not letting anybody get off of this podcast without giving a Super Bowl prediction. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> I, I just I just don't know. And I'm, I'm in New York now. I'm in Bill's country here, so this might be uh, threatening my life. But I just don't know how you root against Tom Brady. I mean, uh, or I guess, uh, you know, he, he's the best. I mean, what he does, he's within the pocket, within his what I call the office. You know, his office is five yards behind that center and in a three-yard box. He is the best that there's ever been. Um, and obviously, when their defense is playing as good as they are, they're just a team that's hard to beat. And, um, as long as we see a good game, that's what I'm really rooting for, though. Can you imagine playing quarterback at your age? 
No, and that's what's crazy is that that man is my age, and I have not played a snap since the fall of 98, <laughs> and I still have things with my body. Uh, I don't know how this man does it. Not often we get to break news on the podcast, Keith, obviously, but uh, getting Jake O'Connell back, really a big deal for Brockport. To- yeah, how about the podcast scoop? Yeah, I, I don't see any reason why Brockport won't start off the season in the top 10, if not the top five, and stay there for most of, of next season. Uh, I don't have a ton to add to what uh, you and Coach Mangone said in the interview. Um, I think you hit most of the obvious questions, and I'm glad you had him expound on some of the axioms and assumptions uh, uh Assumptions? Wow, assumptions that we repeat here on the on the podcast over the years. The most interesting part to me, honestly, was the throwback to uh, when Wesley and Brockport uh, used to be in the same conference, the ACFC, um, and the difference between being in a conference like that, which had a pretty large regional footprint because it was uh, a bunch of kind of misfit teams that didn't have a, a other conference home that turned themselves into a football conference. Uh, now, you know, when in the Empire Eight, I, I think the Empire Eight is a, a good example. Uh, for conferences across the country, and it's probably relatable too. I think when you keep it regionable, you know, coach is right. When you go against the players, get to go against guys they know from high school. Um, families can come to most of the games. The you don't the budget is limited because there are very few overnights. Although as a as a player, you know, the overnights are some of the most fun you'll ever have. Um, and so you want to have a couple of those uh, every season. Um, and I think that's also one of the big differences when you get into the playoffs, too, is that travel becomes a bigger deal. You have to schedule around it. Um, flying for the first time is a big deal for a lot of teams in the playoffs. But I just thought he, he made some good points about the Empire 8. The other thing I thought uh, was when you asked him about the playoffs and, you know, in hindsight, that 66 66- zero first round game against Plymouth State looks like a blowout and maybe we all should have known it had been that but going in the coaching staff doesn't doesn't really know what kind of game it's going to be and so he has to take Plymouth State seriously they played great defense uh, throughout the season you just don't know how the two conferences match up and we've seen examples of whether it's Framingham State um, almost beating Cortland right Um, there was a Curry beat Ithaca one year like we've seen examples where those particular conferences match up and you just can't take one lightly. But I think once we, from the outside, uh, as as well as Brockport had gone through the Empire 8 this season, once you saw that game in the first round, you felt like this was an offense that was going to be tough to stop. And when you look at everything back through the, the prism of the season, when you, you see they put 66 points up in the first round, 49 on Wesley, 31 on DelVal, and then zero against Mary Harden-Baylor, really puts into focus how great that Mary Harden-Baylor defense was this season. Bringing back the ACFC thing for a second, uh, going back to uh, the first time I saw Brockport was a game at Frostburg, which I think, uh, now I'm not going to go look it up, it was either 1999 or 2000, and uh, I was. Uh, this was in the day where I had to shoot film, and uh, if I wanted pictures, and we didn't have a lot of pictures on the website in 1999 and 2000, because it was pre-digital camera days and not everybody had a scanner so I'm standing on the sideline shooting photos um, because I really wanted to see uh, Josh Warner who was a, a pro prospect and ended up being a, 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 a legit pro, pro prospect after that he was an offensive lineman short story long I'm standing on the sideline shooting pictures and um, a couple of times the uh, 
coaching staff and the players kind of encroached the field on the, on the Brockport side, and the uh, officials actually uh, gave a sideline warning. And then later in the game, similarly, I'm standing on the sidelines. I'm I'm outside the box where I'm supposed to be. Uh, the uh, I'm going to say the side judge comes running down the field and runs into uh, one of the Brockport assistant coaches, um, and was uh, basically getting ready to call the to throw the flag for interference. And I, uh, I stepped up and I took the fall for that, saying that uh, they had run into me instead. I don't believe that was Jason Mangone. It seemed like a much larger guy. But uh, just in case, um, you know, maybe somewhere down the line, Brockport owes Frostburg 15 yards. Wow, that was an incredible pull from 20, almost 20 years ago. Oh, man, Only thing I remember- 20 years ago. That, that hurts. That's probably, that's pretty close to true. But, man, that made it, that totally, totally changed my perspective on that story. I'm sorry. That's all right. Deep, deep apologies. Um, the, the only other thing I really took away from the interview is I, I thought um, Coach Mangone and, and by extension Brockport uh, had the ab- absolute right attitude as far as the takeaway from the Mary Harden-Baylor game that you don't feel embarrassed by how you played. You know, there there's some, some level of we felt good that we, uh, after our slow start, we adjusted, but they internalized it and said, hey, this is where the bar is and this is where we have to get to to beat those teams rather than to um, complain about how the score was viewed or anything like that. Like you, that, That's really the, the, the right way to take it. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Barry head coach Tony Koncheski. His team, 11-1 last season, school record for wins, advanced to the second round of the playoffs. And uh, coach, congratulations on a a great season and thanks for joining us. Brad, it's a a pleasure to be on board with you and uh, it was an exciting year for us. Yeah, so I know that obviously expectations were high. You guys had just missed a a shot at the playoffs the year before. Uh, And, you know, maybe going back to... 2017 preseason now is a little bit of ancient history, but you know, what were your feelings about the the Viking season coming into the year? It, it was interesting because we, you know, the progression of our program, it, you know, we started in 2013 and we were 0-9, and then the second year we were 2-8, and and the third year, uh, you know, Pat, I remember you were at one of those games. We were 7-1 heading into our last two yeah. uh, regular season games. We needed to win one of those uh, to secure uh, the conference championship and go to the national playoffs. And we ended up losing both of them by a touchdown. Um, so, you know, that fourth year, uh, you know, was a senior year of our first full recruiting class and ended up going nine and one. And uh, unfortunately, the only loss was to a Wash U team that, um, you know, ended up only having one loss in our conference and they got the automatic bid to the, to the national playoffs. So, uh, you know, we still didn't we still didn't achieve all of our goals yet, and uh, but we also graduated 36 seniors off of that first uh, recruiting class. So uh, we're very inconsistent early on, um, you know, in the season during camp, and you know, we we quite honestly, you know, we're pretty young in, in some spots, and uh, we're playing um, some freshmen saw some significant playing time early, um, but we, we kind of started putting it together. Um, you know, midway through the season, we played center early in the year this year, which uh, we've always felt like is you know, the class program uh, in our conference, um, you know, over the last uh, four or five years. So, you know, we felt good, 
you know, getting a solid win against them. And, you know, you kind of get that snowball rolling. Yeah, it, you guys kind of bucked the trend. It, it's typical uh, in our uh, observation of Division Three over the past 20 years or so that teams kind of take a step backwards in mm-hmm. year five of a program. After that big first senior class graduates, you guys did not, uh, I mean, other than what you described, you guys did not right. really take that step back at all. Well, uh, yeah, that's a great point. And, and I think it had to do with the fact our second recruiting class uh, was phenomenal. And a lot of those guys uh, played a lot you know, as freshmen. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, that first class that kind of saw all the reps uh, for four straight years. We had a bunch of guys that played right away in that second class. Uh, so I think that was probably, um, you know, the difference. And, and obviously, you know, when you talk about good players in that second class, I mean, it certainly helps to have a, you know, a two-time first-team All-American at defensive end uh, that can rush the quarterback. So that that was a factor as well. Um, I am hoping that all these years we pronounce Mamadou Sumohoro's name correctly. Uh, well, you pr- pronounce it correctly or just now, so. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, I came down to see you guys the year before, too. Um, a crazy yeah. rainy night against mm-hmm. the Saps. The Friday night games are great. That makes it uh, – uh, we, we love Friday night games. I know that going up against high school football is not the greatest, but it, it gives us mm-hmm. a chance to come see two games, which is uh, which is definitely helpful. Um, we kind of knew that or suspected, I guess I should say, that building a program in the South and in, in Georgia where you know there's a lot of untapped potential, not a lot of non-scholarship opportunities – kind of led uh gave, gave you guys the opportunity and gives you guys the opportunity to build a big program what's the division three brand like for football in the in your part of the country right now you know having been at lagrange for seven years prior to coming to barry and quite frankly i'm sure that was a a big factor and the reason why i got the head coaching job here at barry is i spent you know seven years two hours south in the same state yeah. um you know at lagrange um First of all, there's phenomenal, there's phenomenal football down here. Um, you know, I just saw a stat the other day, and and you know we're we're talking about Division One top talent here, but uh, you know they made a comparison between Georgia and California, which also has phenomenal football, but California has a population of almost 40 million. You know, Georgia has a population of a little over 10 million, and in the 2019 recruiting class, Georgia has 41. Uh, four and five star recruits and California has 37. Uh, so I mean, I think, you know, per capita, uh, you know, it's tough to find a better, um, uh, you know, brand of football, quality football players than you'll find in this state. And, and really for us, it's a three hour radius, a six hour radius around Rome, Georgia. Uh, you run into some phenomenal talent. Oftentimes our biggest competitors are the preferred walk-ons at some of the uh, higher academic schools in the in the Southern Conference, like the Mercers and the Samfords and the Waffords and the Furmans, um, you know, certainly we compete against uh, some of our conference schools and you know the Davidsons and Stetsons and you know Birmingham Southern, Center Road, Swanee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's certainly some competition, but it's still it's still an education process for uh, you know the players and families of what Division Three football uh, is all about. Um, you know, but now that there's two in the state of Georgia, us in LaGrange, there's two in Alabama, Birmingham Southern and Huntington, uh, three in Tennessee, Maryville Roads and Swanee. 
I, I honestly, it, it kind of sounds weird to say, but I think the increased competition is actually making the quality of football ball down here at the Division Three level better because it's bringing more of an awareness to what Division Three football is all about. Looking ahead at next season for you guys, uh, graduate a, a significant part of your receiving core and a bunch of guys on defense. But uh, like you said, there's still a bunch of there were still a bunch of young guys getting a lot of playing time for you guys this year. Yeah, you know it was interesting. Uh, you know we came back after the loss to uh, to St. Thomas and and uh, you know what a phenomenal program they've they have and Coach Cruz has done an outstanding job there and. Uh, you know, we lost the game, but we felt like we competed and, and represented, uh, Barry represented the Southern Athletic Association uh, pretty well uh, up in St. Paul, Minnesota. And that's not a, that's number one, not an easy turnaround to, you know, make all the flight arrangements to get up to Minnesota. And, uh, oh, by the way, you got to play the number four team in the country too. So, yeah. uh, you know, that, that, that certainly adds to it, but we felt good about the way we competed. But anyway, you know, I, you know, we came home and I was watching the film, um, you know, in my office and somebody stopped in my office and, you know, I paused the film. Uh, and then when I looked back at the film, it was, it was the end zone copy. And it just struck me because for us, we were on defense at the time. You know, I counted six guys that were freshmen, uh, out in the field, uh, playing against, uh, the Tommies. And, uh, you know, we have some guys on offense, certainly, our, our quarterback situation is, is pretty solid with those guys coming back. And, you know, Mason Kinsey had a phenomenal year for us mm-hmm. as a sophomore receiver. So we certainly have, uh, we felt like we have a lot of weapons and, you know, time will tell, but we felt like this year's freshman class could end up being the most talented uh, class we've brought in. But, you know, that still remains to be seen. But, uh, you know, we certainly have a lot of leadership and, you know, we got to find out how tough we are. Uh, I think we have some talent, but, you know, you certainly don't win with talent alone. Yeah, as a member of the National Committee and then as a coach, obviously you saw St. Thomas, you saw the Stag Bowl between Mountain Union and Mary Harden Baylor. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the step or what are the things that separates you guys from competing with teams at the national level, the national elite like those teams? Yeah, I, mean, it's, I can tell you one word uh, kind of sums it up as length. Um you know, when you look at, and it, and it was great to have that experience being on the national committee, being able to see uh, Mary Harden Baylor and Mountain Union up close, um, you know, playing against the Tommies. We need to get longer. Um, you know, the, like, for example, St. Thomas had two six three corners, um, you know, whereas our corners are probably, you know, five eight five nine. 5'9". Uh, you know, those elite programs uh, are able to recruit some length, Um you know, and that's something that we got to do a better job of. And that's something we talked about uh, that was extremely evident, uh, you know, after, you know, after our experience up in Minnesota and, you know, something that we're going to uh, work on this recruiting season. Um, but that's what probably struck me, you know, more than anything. We feel like being in the South, we have some pretty good team speed, but we need to get bigger and we need to get longer. Uh, so, Having finished up a year on the national committee and a year in which a, a lot of things uh, happened, right? To, uh, looking forward to uh, having a new host for the Stag Bowl a couple times over the course of the next four years, and then everything else that goes along with that. What's your takeaway from that? And what did you learn from being on the committee that might help you as a coach or might change your you know position on uh, any of a, a number of things? Well, it was a phenomenal experience for me, and and you know credit goes out to. 
you know, I probably was a little naive in knowing how much of a time commitment that was. Uh, so, you know, the people that volunteer for that, uh, you know, to help our sport, um, you know, the credit goes out to them because it's such a necessary, uh, you know, job to get it right. And, uh, you know, and you really have to study, um, you know, not just on a national level, but certainly you need to be an expert uh, in your region. And it told us that, you know, the conference is the conference schedule, but uh, I think you need to be very thoughtful in who you schedule, you know, non-conference to, you know, help your strength to schedule. And I think we have two pretty solid programs. We only have two non-conference games. We've, since the beginning of our program, we've played Maryville, who's, you know, traditionally been uh, pretty strong. And we've played uh, LaGrange, you know, because that's only two hours away and in the same state. And, you know, we feel pretty good about, uh, you know, how that's going to help us in our strength of schedule. But, uh, you know, that's what struck me probably more than anything is being thoughtful in your non-conference schedule because, you know, you can certainly get rewarded for that um, from a strength of schedule standpoint. It is good, though, to have – I mean, for – I guess I don't know how far you are from Maryville, but it's definitely, I think, within your six-hour radius. And then, sure. And then, the, and then LaGrange is in state. You have uh, – in those cases, you have a couple of uh, key – uh, sets of bragging rights, especially when you go out on the recruiting trail. Yeah, well, that's there's really not many other options. I mean, we, uh, you know, the funny thing for, is for us, we've we've scrimmaged Huntington uh, the last four years, so it was uh, it was interesting. You know, they're talking about you know, the Jaguars and, and and Patriots playing in the AFC Championship game, and I guess during training camp, the Jaguars came up for a couple days, and you know, they kind of did controlled practices uh, with the Patriots and and. Uh, saw a lot of similarities and drew a lot of parallels between what us and Huntington have done, uh, where you scrimmage somebody back in August and then you end up playing them again in the playoffs. So, you know, other than Huntington, Maryville and, and LaGrange, that kind of, we're, we're kind of out of options after that, uh, at that point, you know, down where we're at. So, um, you know, we feel good about our, you know, our, our, our options. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's, that helps prepare for conference play for sure. Uh, you mentioned the Super Bowl, and I'm not letting people get out of uh, their interviews on, on the January podcast without a Super Bowl <laughs> prediction. So uh, what's your take on uh, Super Bowl 52? And I'm sorry. I am so sorry that the Vikings are not in it. I would have hoped that uh, we could have talked about the Vikings in the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you are, Pat. But for me, I'm uh, being, a, being a native of Pittsburgh, uh, I'm disappointed in what happened a couple weeks ago uh, <laughs> you know, with the Jaguars. But... Uh, we have, I have an interesting, uh, an interesting house because, uh, you know, me being from Pittsburgh, my wife is actually from Foxborough, Massachusetts. So, wow. um, yeah, we have some, some, there's some tense scenes in our, in our household, uh, at, at various points over the years with those two teams matched up. So it's tough for me to, to go against the Patriots. I don't know how you can go against Tom Brady and, and Bill Belichick. And, um, you know, I, I think it, to a certain extent, I mean, I like to think of it, you know, guys like a Bill Belichick and then Josh McDaniel, uh, they carry a, a little bit of the Division Three banner, too. So, Absolutely. you know, I think you always uh, want to cheer for that. Oh, uh, I guess I thought that would be the last question, but you led me to a follow up. Any uh, pro prospect uh, possibilities for Sumohoro this year? Yeah, he's he's getting some looks. Um, you know, uh, Mamadou's 6'2", 235 pounds. Um, so he's you know, he play. wants he wants to play at the next level. Um, it has to be linebacker you know, then, right? Yes, I mean, it, 
you know, there's there's been some talk uh, with some some people from the CFL where he can play rush end position for them uh, because it's a little bit different style of football. Um, you know, but he's you know that's something that he wants to do, and and you know it's great to have a have a guy like that and and see the success that he's had. But he's a tremendously humble individual, uh, a tremendously hard worker. So uh, we hope we can see him have success at the next level, and that's something that he definitely wants to pursue. Keith, you know, we always talk about the new programs and we talk about uh, programs on to on their way to year four and on their way to year five. And, and uh, Barry definitely kind of uh, bucked the mold here. Well, I think their experience is really instructive as to how to build a program. But they had a couple of built in advantages and, uh, and and coach mentioned them both in the interview. One is that he'd gone through the building process uh, with LaGrange. So he had an idea of how it's supposed to work and how to attack it and also Probably had some ins in high schools around uh, around Georgia by then, so he wasn't necessarily like a, being a guy from Pittsburgh coming to Georgia for the first time and meeting high school coaches and all that. Um, and I also think there's just some huge benefit to building in Georgia because D3 is not very widespread in the South, although D2 um, and, and FCS is. Yeah. He, t- he talked about how some of the toughest competition for him is those other really high academic schools where a kid has to decide, do I want to be a preferred walk-on here? Do I r- really want to go to the school or do I want to play D3? And th- there was, a, um, I don't know if you watched, um, how the heck, I'm drawing a blank on the name. It was on Netflix, Last Chance You. There was a kid uh, on there who went to a community college and uh, seemed like kind of a, the kind of kid who would fit in in D3, to be honest with you. And he ended up being a, a preferred walk-on at Mississippi State. And the the thing i got from the from that part of the documentary was this kid's dream was to play at mississippi state and it didn't matter whether he actually ever played at mississippi state he just wanted to be on the team there and he was clearly good enough to play at another level cuz he was uh, he was a quarterback at this community college but that's what d3 coaches are sometimes going up against especially in the south you just have these different levels of football and there's very few d3 programs there so as coach talked about it's an education process to explain to parents, hey, your your kids going to come here. They're going to have to have an academic focus because you know there's it's not necessarily a direct line to the pros from here. So you you, you let go of those dreams, but you have some other dreams in some other field that you want to to latch on to. You're not going to get an ath- athletic scholarship, but there there's probably going to be some available money, some help if you want to get into this school. And if you get into this school, you know if we're talking about going to Rhodes or somewhere like that, you may be really set for life when it's your career path that you're following so you get to play football for four more years and then you get to embark on whatever other career you want to that's a lot of what they're going through in the south but there's quite an opportunity to grow d3 because there's always going to be a ton of football talent that doesn't fit doesn't earn a scholarship and a lot of those guys either they don't play they go walk on somewhere and they don't play or uh or they find homes in pla- at places like Barry and LaGrange and Huntington and Birmingham Southern. Or they go to like UT Austin and just uh, play intramural football and live uh, the regular college life and miss out on a complete opportunity in that way too. Um, I talked to Coach Koncheski about scheduling because this is something that we hear uh, more on the basketball side of the house, uh, D3Hoops.com, but when coaches join the regional committee and then the national committee, they suddenly get this whole new perspective on how 
you can affect your playoff at large chances by changing your non-conference scheduling. And it, it, it definitely sounded like uh, Coach Koncheski uh, began to understand some of that thing as well. Well, I imagine that's probably a good step for a coach in a young up-and-coming program. You know, we can harken back to the time where we sat with Coach Caruso in Salem before St. Thomas ever made it to the Stag Bowl, and he was just taking it all in. We've run into um, Mike Leonard from Franklin down there, and he was putting together a book on how to get his program to Salem. Um, So being part of that experience, whether it's just going to the Stag Bowl or whether it's actually serving on the national committee, um, probably really helps a coach get an idea of of what the landscape is. If you're a longtime listener to this podcast, um, if you're if you're Pat or Keith, then you understand these things, all the factors that go into um, picking the playoff teams, and it's really just the five main criteria. But there there's so many levels of you know we can dig into the weeds pretty deep about that stuff to sort the teams out. But I think it's probably true that a lot of people don't necessarily understand how the playoffs are selected. And these are people who are in D3, uh, whether they're fans, parents, um, and sometimes even coaches. So that experience is probably super instructive. But as a coach, he also has to balance the reasons his team is picking non-conference games. You want to balance the competitiveness, right? You want you want those benefits. Maybe it's going to help us if we have, a, our, if we have our once-in-a-lifetime great season and we are 9-1. One, we want to have those non-conference wins to help us get in the postseason. But you're also trying to balance how much it's going to cost. Playing regional rivalries for for uh, for Barry, it's great to play Lagrange, right? They're two D three schools in in Georgia. Yeah. Um, it's great to play Maryville because it's it's not a ridiculously long trip, and those are maybe some of the overlap that you'll have when you're recruiting. And as Coach said, the more that prospective D three players hear from different D three programs, the more it breaks down the mystique of, oh, I'm either I'm only playing D3 or I don't really understand how D3 works. So I think all this this stuff factors in, and I know it's kind of a a, a long winding answer, but but I think it's um, it's smart to serve on that committee and uh, and really open your understanding of of the D3 um, landscape. I talked with both of these coaches, and uh, in the past we've asked this question of other coaches as well because I really want to get their perspective on what they think separates them from the teams at the next level. And, you know, sometimes coaches can self-select what that next level is, right? Uh, If you're in the, you know, a a one-and-out type of playoff team, maybe your next level is different than it would be for a Brockport, which was, uh, you know, one game away from playing in the Stag Bowl. But I usually hear coaches talk about their team's depth as one of the delimiting factors between them and the elite teams in Division Three, And I expected to get the same answer from Coach Koncheski, but that was not what we got. No, another one we hear is uh, offensive line play, that there just aren't enough offensive linemen to go around. And after your, your, high, your high school area, your coaches come through and they take the D1 kids and they take the, the other scholarship kids, you're left with the, a few guys that you have to develop in the O-line. We hear that one a lot too, right? You hear team depth. But length, I think, is an interesting reply. I don't know that we've ever heard that one before. And you know, personally, I internalize this because as a six foot two defensive back, I actually would have been a priority recruit if I'd come along 20 years later. Um, but length, length does make sense, right? You want length um, at cornerback. You want it uh, on your defensive ends. The more, the more arm they have, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, the better um, they can use their hands to uh, to, to pass rush. So uh, same thing. Uh, 
I guess O line blocking too. Like there, there are actually a lot of lot of places besides wide receiver where it's uh, and, and tight end where it's helpful to be tall. So uh, uh, length and length, of course, is not just height, but it's your your arm length and uh, and your legs too. If you still have that quickness, but you but you're five inches taller than the other guy you're recruiting, can't hurt, right? So that was that was a fascinating answer. Keith, by the time your fellow Eagles fans get here to Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, it will be back uh, around zero, maybe below zero. But we had a couple of 40-degree uh, days last week, and that allowed me the opportunity to go back into my garage and dig into the Craig Burroughs collection. Uh, what I've pulled out for you might seem like a relatively pedestrian uh, media guide when you look at the cover. Uh, it's the Juniata 2000 media guide. And then uh, I was looking at that and going, oh, yeah, okay, I remember this team. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute. I remember, too, that this is the uh, previous head coaching opportunity for Kevin Burke. And if you're a, a Mount Union fan and you're confused, that's because it's not the same Kevin Burke. This is the Kevin Burke who just took over as uh, head coach at Gettysburg, which is why I uh, decided to pull this particular piece out of the collection this week. Yeah. Um, so Juniata, of course, at that time, I think was was uh, also really on uh, on hard times. They were one of the programs that was struggling. But then uh, then Coach Burke... He was with Coach Streeter for for quite a long time at at Gettysburg, and and uh, Barry Streeter retired after was it thirty nine years at Gettysburg. I'm gonna say that, that sounds right. Yeah, thirty nine. Uh, something like that. For me, I I just remember he was one of the coaches who came through uh, Triton in nineteen ninety three, and you know I was went to high school in South Jersey, so coaches. You know, they'd pull you out of class sometimes and say, hey, there are a few coaches in the in the football room, and it would be from Uhlenberg or Widener or, or uh, Gettysburg, and that, that was Coach Streeter. Uh, that's how long ago he, he was a – he was a, not, I don't say a legend then, but he was a longtime coach then, and uh, and, and uh, he just retired at Gettysburg this past season, and, and Kevin Burke is, uh, is taking over. And I imagine the previous um, head coaching experience in Pennsylvania will, will really help. Uh, when uh, Burke was there, this was uh, this was the media guide for his third season. Uh, in the previous season, they had uh, posted a winning record for the first time since 1988, and they had gone through a long string of three win, one win, two win seasons, three win seasons in that uh, in that previous time. But I, I thought it was kind of interesting because indeed, that's a uh, it will be helpful. But it's a long gap between uh, head coaching stints for Kevin Burke. In fact, I had not remembered because remembering 240 50 division three coaches times 18 years is not something that i save space for in my brain it takes up the space that i need to try to remember like basketball coaches and stuff but uh, to, to then be reminded that yeah this uh this was a previous coaching opportunity for him at a really young age i thought you were going to say try to remember how to walk or something like that <laughs> like you, you know you got so much d3 in your brain you you need motor function and and other things you know your <laughs> anniversary you need to be needs to be in there oh crap Oh, that's until um, August. I'm good. All right, I, I do think it's it's interesting to to not have um, been a head coach for for quite that time, but also to have been around uh, someone like Coach Streeter. And as a coach nears, the more comfortable a coach is in his job, more more than likely he's he's uh, willing to delegate big tasks. Uh, you know, so if Coach Streeter and, and Coach Burke were together for a long time, I imagine Coach Burke had some pretty good responsibilities. You know, the biggest Gettysburg went through a pretty big change. I don't know how many years ago it was now, but they were the kind of one of the last wing T teams. Yeah, they were. They were. They basically had. I don't want to say they helped invent it, but they were certainly one of the 
teams along with uh, Delaware and Augustana who, who popularized and carried on, maybe popularized is not the right word, but carried on the, the wing tee offense. And even after the spread became more popular, they were one of the last teams to hang on to it. And eventually they went to sort of uh, a, uh, a spread tee offense. And then I think now their offense is pretty traditional. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what changes, if any, are in store. Players always want the continuity between coaching staffs because you just don't have to earn your spot again. You don't have to get to know everybody again. That means most of the assistants stay and a lot of what is familiar about your program stays on. So I think players probably like it, but you know, it may, sometimes it's good for, for, for change to come through your program. You know, the best example I can think of is, uh, is at uh, whitewater where everybody wanted things to stay the same after one coach retired, they brought in, uh, a, an outside guy who was had ties to the university had gone there, but um, it turned out to be Lance Leipold, and it worked out pretty great. So sometimes um, the fresh voice is actually not a bad thing, but we'll, we'll see how this one works out. Last thought on this media guide, because we're already in a super long podcast, but uh, this uh, one lists press box phones for schools and then uh, school athletic hotline numbers, a definite blast from the past, things we do not do anymore. That's pretty funny. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Keith, you know what the music means? Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. I yes, indeed. Uh, it's it's Every like it's in the it's like it's in the track itself. It's awesome. It is. I'm sorry. You're right. I didn't have to explain it for the listeners. Well, we could have new listeners. It's January. Maybe people are just uh, joining us now. If you're just joining us now for 2018, uh, we talked earlier in the podcast about uh, the fact that this is a a schedule-making time of year. Uh, by the time you hear this, or at least by the time most of you hear this, we should have a team page created for each team for the 2018 season that will have whatever we have at their schedule at this time. We've got 90 schedules that are complete for 2017 and a bunch of partial ones, and nearly two-thirds of the expected 1,250 games are in. Don't forget, for 2018, it's the year that uh, University of New England and Alvernia start their football programs. Uh, Wash U moves into the CCIW. Finlandia joins the MIAA. And Ferrum goes to the Old Dominion Athletic Conference. I think that covered the conference changes, right? Yeah, and please let's uh, pinpoint that. I'm going to copy that graph and send it to myself. And, like, do not open until June <laughs> when we start planning kickoff. Because that's the first thing we do uh, with when we start into the new season is kind of, like, remember who's who's who and who's where. Um so we're going to crack 250 officially. We've kind of been rounding up for the past uh, past few years. But UN, UNE and Alvernia, that's going to put us at 251, right? Yeah, and even if Benedictine leaves, we'll still have 250. That's uh, something Benedictine in Illinois is talking about moving to Division Two. It sounds like that might happen. And if you're a person who follows intently during the season and then doesn't follow quite as closely during the offseason, there's always conference movement, coaching changes, um, and we keep a good running list uh, of coaching the coaching carousel uh, on the website, and then under news and notables is uh, is where a lot of that movement stuff happens. But it's always kind of a surprise when you come back the next season or uh, or whenever it is that you dip in, especially if you're a frequent listener of the off season podcast. Um, it's good to know these things. What, what kind of games stand out to you, Pat, uh, this year uh, of the ones you looked at and the ones you've been entering? Yeah, I'm definitely interested in, of course, some of the new and different non-conference games. Uh, 
Uh, Wheaton is uh, hosting Monmouth. That's a, a bit of a step up. Actually, I am not sure which team, uh, which non-conference team they lose to add Monmouth, but they didn't have a, a great non-conference schedule in the course of the past couple of years, so that'll be a nice step up. Uh, Northwestern is going from Minnesota to Claremont Mud Scripps, which um, is just intriguing because it's a, a random semi-cross-country trip. Uh, Thomas Moore, you know they're going to be an independent this year. I probably should have mentioned that above. Um, they're going to play at St. Scholastica, which is uh, one of many uh, interesting games that uh, Thomas Moore is going to have in order to try to fill out a 10-game schedule. Um, also, one more that uh, should be interesting, too, is uh, University of uh, Wisconsin-Whitewater is going to play Dubuque, and we know that uh, we know who they share in common. That's uh, the head coach, Stan Zwiefel, who was mentioned previously not by name in this podcast, <laughs> amazingly. <laughs> yes, as uh, someone who thought, uh, uh, who who was uh, thought by uh, quite a few to be the heir apparent at uh, Whitewater, didn't get that job. Now he's at Dubuque, and they're going to be facing each other coming up this year. Also, non-conference. Uh, this is the year that Mount Union switches. So after two years with North Carolina Wesleyan, they start a home and home with Rose Holman. But there are obviously many more, although not as many non-conference games, of course, as there used to be because there are so many large conferences now. Yeah, I think D3 went through a, a few seasons where some of the common sense things just finally happened. Uh, Huntington landed in the conference. Wesley finally went to the NJAC. City. Uh, the New York teams have solidified, although... Uh, they're now also breaking apart again and going back and forth between Liberty League and uh, Empire and all that. But they, at one point, you know, half of the NJAC was was upstate New York teams. It didn't really make sense. Things make sense a lot more now. And it also means eight, nine, ten team conferences, which means nine games scheduled, fewer non-conference games. And then you have those partnerships, too, between, um, you know, the was it the MAC? Is it still the MAC and the PAC? Yeah, they don't do that anymore. The MAC is, of course, now going to have an unbalanced schedule where not everybody's going to play each other because they've got eleven games or eleven teams. Right, right. But when there when there were those, it was um, the the MIAA and the and the NAC had one too, where they would just you know they automatically had a scheduling um, a scheduling partnership so that there were schedules were getting filled out and you'd have less of those random sort of Wesley at DePauw or, you know, Wesley North Central games where yeah. um, they're super intriguing to us. We love those games, but they, they don't land on the schedule quite as much. The Claremont one is interesting because they've been doing this for a few years now. They had a home and home with Washington Lee. Yep. And I believe they had a random game beforehand too. Kings like Point. Kings? Yeah. 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 Way, way back in the day. When, this is why I called them King's Point. They've been fairly consistent now calling themselves Merchant Marine for the past decade, but before they were kind of back and forth, and so were we. Um, coaching changes, we talked about a couple of them already. Uh, the, the recent ones I think are interesting in terms of uh, Chad Martinovich goes from MIT to the University of Rochester. Uh, that's a guy who's a, a Hobart grad. Uh, was an assistant at Hobart and, and elsewhere in the state of New York, then got a head coaching job. And, you know, he was there for the year that MIT made the playoffs and went 10-0 and during the regular season. And now that's a huge rebuilding project because U of R has not been very good for quite a while now. But it also doesn't – you know this better than me. They're good in other sports, aren't they? U of R is good in sports that we cover. Yep, that's true. Basketball. Yeah, so you, you would think – um, that should be just because of the the size of the school, the area that it's in, the um, type of endowment it probably has. I don't know 
that for a fact. But it's it seems like a very prominent school to not have uh, a very good football team. And on the flip side, Martinovich not only having the um, the New York ties, but he's hit the ceiling. I think at MIT that one year is probably the the most MITs ever going to be able to do. Maybe um, you're just not going to. It's just it's just going to be a challenge to recruit football players to MIT every season and create a um, consistent winner. It's been done at, at good schools before. Johns Hopkins is a great example. So I'm not saying it can't be done. Uh, RPI is another good example. They're usually pretty good at football. But um, I just think they should be they be they should be better. And having that experience recruiting to a super elite college, yeah. um, but also going back to New York should be a pretty good match. I, I like I like them to be a little bit better in the next couple of years. We don't usually cover coordinator changes, not in the coaching carousel anyway, unless you're hiring someone who's a um, was a Division three head coach at another school before this job. But uh, interesting that there will be uh, offensive shakeups at UW-Whitewater this upcoming season and at St. John's. And I'm sure, of course, obviously many other places changing offensive coordinators, but I, I cite these two specifically because these are two storied programs that have gone deep into the playoffs before but have really struggled on offense over the course of the last couple of years. In Whitewater especially, um, you get the feeling that Hot seat's not the right word, but there's a little pressure there for that coaching staff to get the most out of the program because obviously there was a 10-year run of dominance where they were – there was a point where they were the program in D3 that actually probably surpassed Mountain Union, won like four or five stag bowls uh, against the Purple Raiders. And that's slipping away, right? You don't know. Is All right, did they lost in the um, quarterfinals two years ago, missed the playoffs this season, although they had some tough losses against some very good teams in uh, in, in Illinois, Wesleyan, and, and Concordia, Moorhead, and then Oshkosh. But that's a program that I think that they're searching for for some kind of spark, and, and if it doesn't happen this season, you know, it, we could see some changes. Uh, not to short Whitewater, they beat Mountain Union six times in the Stag Bowl. So just to uh, get that on the record before we get angry emails from uh, Whitewater, Wisconsin. And uh, man, we are giving you guys uh, not quite a double wide podcast, but pretty close to it. So we better get out of here. But uh, I, I know I promised a, a Super Bowl pick. We uh, and I did. I told our three guests I wouldn't let them off the hook without a Super Bowl pick. But uh, Keith, uh, we'll start with yours, and then I'll give you mine. Well, yeah, it's hard for me to put a, a, a number on it at this point, but I would say that as an Eagles fan, I'm actually more confident for the Super Bowl than I was against the Vikings. And confident doesn't mean overconfident. Like I was probably like uh, 45, 55 or 40, 60 against the Vikings. I just thought that defense was really good. Uh, they were one of the best defenses in football all season, and it was going to be hard to move the ball. And Foles had been up and down, you know, kind of a joke within Eagles fan circles is like, are you going to get the good foals or bad foals? Yeah. Um, and that probably holds true for the Super Bowl. Uh, clearly, the NFC Championship game was the good foals. The second half of the Falcons game was the good foals. Uh -huh. So if you get the good foals in the Super Bowl, I, I think the Eagles have a really good chance. I think this is at least a 50-50 shot. On the surface, everyone says, well, Brady and Belichick, two weeks of, of Bill Belichick and a coaching staff, um, plus the greatest quarterback in the history of the game, why would you ever feel confident going against that? Well, the the Patriots defense isn't that good. If you look at the uh, the the analytics on it, the DVOA numbers, they're terrible against the run. They give up like 4.7 yards per carry or something like that during the season. So I actually think 
um, the Eagles have a pretty good shot here. If you're going to make me, you're going to put me on the on the um, on the spot and make me make a pick. I guess like twenty seven, twenty four, something like that. Like I don't, I hate to hate to have Brady coming down the field against even the a defense as great as the Eagles, and the Eagles are one of the best defenses in football all season. I hate to have Brady with the ball with a chance to win. You know, as soon as the Falcons went in overtime last season, everybody knew they they were going to score. Uh, so you don't want to get in that situation. You want to be in a situation where the Eagles are maybe protecting the lead and are running the ball to kill the clock uh, rather than having to face Brady. Because if you f- you face that, it's uh, it's definitely bad news. Man, I feel like I should just uh, pick the opposite so that we balance out here. Um, the uh, you know the thing that well, it... for the record, three guests all took the Patriots. Just for the record. So <laughs> oh okay, did you you were keeping track? Were you? It wasn't that hard to keep track. <laughs> um, I was impressed with the the game plan, obviously that uh, the Eagles had in the uh, in the NFC Championship game against the Vikings. They just made the Vikings uh, defense, uh, which was statistically and uh, on the field a really great defense all season, uh, made them look super pedestrian. Um, that was uh, that was really impressive. Uh, you're right about giving uh, Belichick two weeks to prepare. That's uh, that's hard for me to overcome. Um, I have. Good friends who have worked on this website, who are Patriots fans. I have good friends who have worked on this website and currently do, who are Eagles fans. Uh, and I'm going to go with the Eagles. And Keith, I tell you what, if it's your score, then that's going to be a fantastic freaking football game. And I, I look forward to watching that kind of Super Bowl. Well, for those of you, you who are very young, um, you think of the Super Bowl as a as an event every year where you get these kind of endings like the Patriots, Falcons, the That's Seahawks, right. Patriots. That's right. um, you can even go back to the Titans and Rams if you go that far back. But prior to that 1999 <laughs> game in 1999, of course, is an important year in D3Football.com history. <laughs> the Super Bowls were always blowouts. They oh. were always terrible. Oh. It would just be one team's coronation. It would just be 49ers 55, Chargers 10, or, or, or whatever it is. So if, if you guys, anyone out there who's in their 30s or 40s who's listening, maybe uh, even in, if you're in your 50s, you remember when the Super Bowl was terrible. I can relate to that that feeling of, hey, I just want to see a good game. It, it's much different when one of your teams is in it. Um, but I, I just feel, I feel weirdly confident um, because that Minnesota defense is much better than than the Patriots defense. And, and that happened last week, which still to this day was was amazing. And as you and I record this on a Sunday, um, I wish Super Bowl. I wish still wish there was one week between, but uh, well, we got one more week to go. And uh, for all you out there who just want to see a good game, that's fine. I don't want to just see a good game. And that was Around the Nation podcast number 191, uh, released January 29th, 2018 for the month of January. Uh, thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the off season. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Podkicker or name your podcast listening uh, app here because wherever you get your podcast, rating it will help other football fans find it. Uh, the executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, and you can find him at djmentos.com. Thanks to our guests, Patrick Mohorchik, Jason Mangoni, Tony Koncheski, and Sports Information Directors Kevin Smith, Stacey Corey, and Blake Childers for their time on this edition of the show. And thank you, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my podcast co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter. We use the D3FB hashtag all year round. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports, and you can join the conversation by registering to post there at D3Boards.com, and you can follow us on Facebook as well. 
Yep, it's off-season time here in Division Three football, but there's still new content on our website on a regular basis. So come to d3football.com as we will follow coaching changes, players with pro prospects, 2018 football schedules, and much more. Plus, you'll find a new podcast in this feed from us each month. I definitely said Mangone instead of Mangoni like more than once. And you said um, Pats and Mike's instead of Pats and Geno's. So. Dang it. I People looking remember. for Easter eggs or errors in there. Mm. <laughs> Those are the. Does your Easter egg come wit or not? I don't know. Oh, that's good. That's good. We should cut it right there. <laughs> <laughs>